All right, the sermon text for today is from Acts 8, 4 to 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced, practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is a, has the power of God, and is, that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for, the, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Um, yeah, well, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me down. Um, it's always a pleasure to preach for other Christ the King congregations. Um, it's my first time preaching here. Um, yeah, so it's great to be here. We've lived in Somerville now since, uh, since August, but I've been affiliated with the Christ the King Network now for like four years, which is kind of wild. I was interning throughout seminary. So yeah, it's a privilege to be here. And um, we are continuing our way through the book of Acts, which we are also studying up in Somerville. And, you know, the book of Acts, it traces the growth of the early church from the very first days. So Jesus, he died, he was raised from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. And his followers are then given this task. They're given this mission to take the message of the gospel, this good news about who Jesus was, what he did, and to spread it, starting in Jerusalem, but then spreading it really to the ends of the earth, all the way currently to where we are today. You know, in Acts 1.8, Jesus actually gives them this very specific command. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, tell all people everywhere about Jesus, and who he was, and what he did. And, um, if you guys have been around for this sermon series, we've seen uh, in the book of Acts that the church faces a lot of challenges. They face external challenges like persecution. 
They face internal challenges, just trying to work out their own issues inside the church. But in spite of all these challenges that they're facing, the church continues to grow, continues to thrive. Um, and, and last week, with, um, if you were here, we, we looked at the account, I think you guys looked at the account, of uh, the stoning of Stephen. Um, and with that, all of a sudden, in the city of Jerusalem, which is you know, the epicenter of Judaism, there is really intense persecution of Christians. And it kind of pushes them out. It, it scatters them about. And when they scatter, they're almost forced into fulfilling this mission that Jesus charged them to, to fulfill, which is taking the gospel beyond the bounds of Jerusalem, beyond the bounds of Judea. And as they do that, they face more and more challenges. And, um, and, and as they do this, we see here in um, Acts 8 that they first take this message of the gospel to Samaria. And this is a very specific geographical location that we're going to look at into more specifically as we go. But we'll also see that throughout the book of Acts, they're taking the gospel into cities, into these major urban areas that are really diverse, different religions, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And they're boldly proclaiming it, uh, both to people's spiritual and physical needs. And we see, despite challenges, the church grows. Um, and so, you know, as we think about this as, as Christians in, you know, modern 21st century urban New England, I think we can actually draw quite a few really important points out of this passage that impact the way that we live today, what it actually looks like to live as a Christian, to live and breathe in Boston as a Christian. And um, so as we look at this passage, I just want to point out three, three things. Um, you know, as Christians, we're called to this task of what I'm going to call gospel ministry. So I'm going to use that term frequently and we'll kind of define it as we go. But we're called to gospel ministry in the city and it should look radically attractive. It should be radically inclusive and it should be radically forgiving. So those are kind of our three points that we're going to break down in turn. So the gospel ministry in the city should be radically attractive, should be radically inclusive, and it should be radically forgiving. So, you know, at Christ the King, it's part of our mission statement. Um, and actually, now I'm speaking more about Christ the King Somerville's mission statement, so I apologize. But our mission is, is that the gospel will actually impact every single aspect of our lives. Which means, as we go out and live our lives in Boston, it's going to impact that as much as it impacts our time in worship today. But I think if you, if you kind of reflect over your life and think about what it actually looks like to live as a Christian in the world... It's really challenging to do this in certain contexts. You know, why is it so difficult for us to live this sort of gospel ministry out? You know, it's difficult to, to radically love our neighbors, no matter who they are. It's, it's very difficult to be open about Jesus in a city like Boston. You know, it's easier to, to just kind of fly under the radar around non-Christians. You know, it's easier to build friendships and have relationships with, with people like you to kind of stay in your, your cultural lane. And it's definitely easier to, to avoid people that might be challenging to love, challenging to care for. Um, and it's really difficult to extend forgiveness in a really challenging situation. So acknowledging those challenges, I think this passage is going to show us a way that we can actually be empowered to live these things out in our context of Boston. So first, we're going to look at this, this idea that gospel ministry should be radically attractive. You know, in verses 4 to 8, Philip is, is preaching this message of Christ in this city in Samaria. And it says, 
crowds gathered to hear him. And it says they paid attention, which is kind of an interesting phrase. I mean, they weren't just listening to like argue. They weren't listening to prove him wrong. They were actually earnestly engaging and paying attention. Moreover, we see Philip is actually healing the lame. He's healing the paralyzed. He's casting out unclean spirits. And it says the people in the city, they're in awe. They're amazed at what this guy Philip is doing. And so we see Philip, he's doing two things. He's preaching, he's healing, he's not just bringing words, but he's also bringing this sort of embodiment. He's, he's acting in the world as Christ. He's proclaiming what Christ has done, who he is, but he's also healing people spiritually and physically. And it says in verse 8, there was much joy in that city because of this. That's actually in your mission statement, which is kind of cool. So as Philip is, is bringing this to this city, it says it brought about joy. So now, what do I mean? I'm using this term attractive, right? Um, so what do I mean by that? I don't, I don't mean that it was merely uh, like popular or captivating. Because there's a lot of things in this world that are, that are attractive and that are not actually truly good or beautiful. And, and because we also see in this account with Simon the Magician. And we're going we're gonna to break him down in our third point. But, um, you know, Simon was this really popular ma magician who had this sort of attractive magnetism. He was gathering crowds. People paid attention to him. But we, we are going to learn later that in verse 10, you know, they paid attention to Simon. But he was really, he was kind of doing magic tricks. He was healing, doing healing rituals. And, and it was really just about him building this following. And it, it didn't have any real grounding, any real substance. So what's attractive about this message that Philip is preaching? You know, he, he's not just putting on a spiritual spectacle for people to observe. You know, this message had power. It was true. He, he's offering hope of real reconciliation, real forgiveness. He's offering these folks true and real relationship with God himself. And these Samaritans, are, they're attracted to this message. They believe it. It says they actually are repent. They repent and they're baptized. And so as this message of the gospel goes out, people respond to it. People own it. They give their lives to it. They reorient everything about themselves to believe and to give themselves over to this message. So I think we have to confront this question, you know, why, or, you know, why is the message of the gospel attractive? And just first, is it attractive? You know, and I would, I would submit that there is something really compelling about the story of Christianity. Um, you know, in, in our modern age, there are so many different narratives that we can structure our lives around. There are so many different ways we can live. You know, our culture, our broader secular culture, you know, promises um, ultimate freedom. That you can just do whatever you want and express yourself however you, however you feel. And that is where true life and true freedom comes from. And, and to live as a Christian um, kind of seems really antiquated. Seems really out of step with where our modern culture is. You know, I, I, you know, we might even think like the story of Christianity has been debunked and now we're figuring out new stories to live according to. But to be a, to be a Christian is to actually lean into this story, to believe that it's true. That Jesus is actually worth reorienting our entire lives around. Um, you know, there's something really interesting in this passage where it says, you know, the people are paying attention and it's leading them to joy. So if you're paying attention to something and it leads you to joy, I think that that's kind of insinuating that these people have been captivated by something really true and really beautiful about what Philip is proclaiming. They're not finding it merely attractive to observe or, you know, entertaining, but they're finding it compelling enough to actually give their lives 
over to it. Um, when I was younger, um, freshman year of college or so, I was really uh, in a season, in a time of, of pretty intense doubt. I was really wrestling with my faith. You know, I was like, is this my faith? Is this my parents' faith? What's good? I, I had big questions about the Bible. And I picked up a book that was really helpful to me at the time by Donald Miller uh, called Blue Like Jazz. And he, he says this when, when he was wrestling with Christ Christianity himself. He says, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they're showing you the way. Um, and I think what, what Miller is saying here is in order for him to really grasp Christianity, he had to see the beauty of it. He had to see somebody live it. He had to see somebody love Jesus for him to be compelled by it. And I think most of us here that have, have put our faith in Christ have had um, some experience where you have seen the beauty of, of Christ in somebody else. You found something compelling about the way another Christian was living their life. Um, maybe it was somebody that was a good friend to you. You know, you, and you saw how they, they cared for you in a hard time of life. Uh, maybe you heard the gospel preached really well and you realize that this is not, not just attractive, but it's true and meaningful. You know, for me, I can look back to uh, a time when I was in high school and I had a Young Life leader, Young Life's uh, outreach ministry that, that spent time with me and my friends and he really cared for us well. And, and, um, and it was seeing the Christian life lived out through him that I found it attractive and compelling. And, and you know, again, in our world, there's a lot of things that are attractive, that, that kind of vie for our attention, that compete for our souls. And so again, we have to ask this question, what's actually captivating about this story of Christianity that we would give our lives to it. Um, so I would ask you, you know, think about a time, if, you, if you're a Christian, think about a time where you found the message of the gospel really beautiful. Maybe you saw it lived out in somebody's life, you heard it preached well, you read a book that was really well done. Um, you know, I think we have, to, we have to be captivated by the beauty of the gospel. We have to be attracted to it. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to, like, ride on that feeling. You know, as Christians, you know, we live in a really broken and challenging world, and we have to navigate the reality of our sin and the fallenness of the world. But I think it's important to remember how much beauty is in this message of the gospel, that it can actually lead to there being joy in our lives, to joy in this city where it's being proclaimed. You know, it's an amazing thing that through Jesus, we can actually know God an amazing thing. It's an attractive thing. And so I think as we, as we reflect on that, I, I think it challenges us to ask, you know, do we live in a way that is attractive to those around us? Do we talk about Jesus in a way that's attractive to non-believers, that's compelling to them? Um, you know, it's, again, it's much easier to, to just sort of fly under the radar with these things, to go along, to get along. And uh, it's, it's easier to remain you know, comfortable and safe um, than to, to stick your neck out and, and admit that you're a Christian. But I think if we, if we really let the, the beauty and, and the attractiveness of this message of the gospel seep into our soul, you know, it should move us to, to share this message of Jesus. I'm not, not obnoxiously, not like screaming from the streets or anything, but it should compel us to, to own it, to recognize that this is a major component of our lives.
You know, maybe you've had the experience of after watching a great TV show or a great film, you know, people my age, the conversation's always like, what, what are you watching on Netflix? What should I watch next? You know? And after you've watched a great TV show, it's really hard not to talk about it. I just watched a great show that I don't know anybody that's seen it, and I just want to talk about it with somebody, and I can't find anybody. So maybe i catch you after the, after the service, we can talk about it. But there's, this, there's something in us that when we experience something beautiful, we want to share it with others. And I think that that's true of when we experience the beauty of the gospel, that we can know God through Jesus. It compels us to share this message. And we see Philip doing that in our passage, sharing this passage so that people paid attention and were in awe and they were, they were moved to believe it and to have joy. And that's an amazing thing. And secondly, as we, as we think about um, gospel ministry, I think it should be radically inclusive. Because who is Philip bringing this message of the gospel to? He's bringing it to Samaritans and a magician. Now, those two terms don't mean a whole lot to us today. You know, you might think Samaritan, like good person, like good Samaritan, and that's in the right direction. Um, but magician, you know, that's just kind of weird, right? We think like a street performer, magician. I personally think of Joe Bluth from Arrested Development, you know, somebody that you just completely would not take seriously. But in this day and age, a magician, as we see in our text, had this major following. People were really compelled by this guy. He said he had a lot of power, he had a big following. Um, and, and Philip is preaching the message of the, the gospel to this guy who, by their, their terms at the time, would have been referred to as a pagan. You know, a guy who's uh, worshiping just a completely different religion than the Jews. Um, probably seemed extremely far away from believing the gospel. Um, and then secondly, we see this group, the Samaritans. So who are the Samaritans? So the Jews uh, essentially, at this time, hated the Samaritans. Um, which is exactly why in the story of the Good Samaritan that many of us are more familiar with, uh, Jesus strategically makes the Samaritan the, the star of the story. But the Samaritans were viewed by, by Jewish people as, as racially inferior. They were viewed as heretics. Um, just a really quick uh, rabbit hole on biblical history. Back in 2 Kings 17, when uh, the nation of Israel fell to the Assyrians, some of the Jews were taken into captivity into Assyria, and, and then they took Assyrians and put them in Israel, and those people, um, you know, became intermixed, and what came of that was the Samaritans. So Jews who took their racial uh, heritage very seriously at the time looked, looked down on Samaritans because of that. And, and Philip is preaching this message of the gospel to Samaritans, to people that Jews typically did not affiliate with at all. And what's amazing is that they believe it, that they can actually, that these Samaritans are actually being brought into relationship with Christ. Um, and then we even see with Simon, and again, we're going to go into Simon more in my third point, but even Simon believes this. Uh, he, it says he repents and he believes the gospel. And so what we're seeing here is, is the, the gospel going forward, uh, forward, and it's going forward not just to Jews, but it's going forward to all people groups. Um, it's for all, it's for everyone. It's for every person of, of a different religious background, racial background, socioeconomic background, that anyone who repents and believes the gospel is welcomed in to the people of God through Christ. This is a rat, for the time, it, and you know, nowadays we kind of have a framework for that, but at the time this was like radical. This was shocking that, that Samaritans were going to be included in the church of Christ. 
Um, and, and what Philip is doing by, by preaching this message to them is, is affirming that the message of the gospel is for everyone. And then we see something kind of peculiar happen. The apostles show up. So Philip is not an apostle. He's an evangelist. He's just out preaching the message of Christ. And um, a couple of the apostles show up and they lay hands on those that believed. And when they lay hands on those that believe, it says the Holy Spirit c- comes into their hearts, regenerates them, and, and, um, and they're brought into union with Christ. And there's, there's some differing opinions on what's actually going on here, but one thing that most commentators agree on is that the reason the apostles show up and they lay hands on these Samaritans and the Holy Spirit comes into them is to affirm that these Samaritans are actually part of the one church. They're not second-class citizens. They are part of the church. They are equal with every believer in Christ. And that's a really, really radical idea for this time. And so as Philip and the apostles are bringing the good news of Jesus into this new context, they're not only fulfilling this important call that Jesus gave them back in Acts 1, but they're also building a new humanity. They're building a new community. It's not based on racial background, not based on socioeconomics, not based on pedigree or power or anything like that. It is based solely on the work of Christ. There's one church, one people of God. And so, you know, as I was thinking about what this would actually look like for us to to own this idea and to put it into practice in Boston, um, I got thinking about Somerville. And I know you guys don't live in Somerville. Maybe somebody out there does. but in Somerville, there's kind of three, three demographics that are essentially living parallel lives, as in we rarely intersect with each other. So there's, there's young, younger urban professionals, mostly white, well-educated. Then there's, these, there's, there's a large group of immigrants who are coming from all over the world. And then there's the, the longer-term historic, mostly white Irish Catholic population in Somerville. And again, we're all kind of living parallel lives. We rarely intersect except in one particular place in Somerville, and that is at the Market Basket on Somerville Ave. And I don't know if you guys have ever been there. I've heard people even drive there from like pretty far south because it's great and cheap. But at this Market Basket, um, you literally see all the demographics of Boston converged in one place. And the store is a little bit chaotic, honestly. I mean, it, there's just people everywhere. The carts are way too big for the aisles. Um, it's, it's like a roller derby in some ways. Um, but in a way, you know, Market Basket is, is kind of this weird, you know, in a much smaller way, this picture of the kingdom of God, of all of these radically different demographics together in one place. And not for the sake of buying groceries, but for the sake of actually worshiping Christ, of being together, um, of knowing each other, of worshiping as one community, unified in Christ. And so every time I go in Market Basket now, I'm like, I think this is probably a better picture of heaven than, than sometimes like when I'm in a place with a bunch of people like myself. And, um, and there's, a, there's a great uh, Tim Keller line that I realized I probably am looking, <laughs> quoting Tim Keller too much because this was actually a tweet, um, not from one of his books. But he, he talks about how Christianity is both the most inclusive religion and also most exclusive religion. So it's the most inclusive in the sense that anyone is welcome in. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter your class, race, so on and so forth. But it's also exclusive in the sense that you have to, in order to be brought into this community, you have to, you have to repent and believe. You have to 
And, and what that means is you have to own this fact that you are a broken person and that you need to reorient your life completely to Christ. Um, and so I think this passage, in a very subtle way, I mean, I think it's, it's really hammering away at this fact that the gospel is for all cultures. It affirms cultural diversity while also bringing unity through this truth of the gospel. And so, you know, I just, big, big question, you know, like, what if our church, what if Christ the King, broader church, you know, looked like Market Basket? You know, that would be challenging to make that happen, but I think gospel ministry calls us to do that, to love our neighbors as ourselves, regardless of of background, regardless of class, regardless of demographic. And I'm not unaware to the challenges of of cross-cultural relationships, to bridge cultural gaps, but I think it's something we're called to, something we're called to take seriously, to own that, to love people across cultural difference. And thirdly, I think this, this passage is a great reminder that, the, that gospel ministry has to be radically forgiving. Radically forgiving. Because later in this account, we see Peter and John, those two apostles, they show up. And they lay hands on the folks that have put their faith in Christ. And with that, the Holy Spirit falls on those that have believed and been baptized. And again, this is a little bit abnormal um, in the book of Acts. Not every time somebody becomes a believer in the book of Acts does an apostle have to lay their hands on them for the the Holy Spirit to come into their hearts. Uh, But it is clear that the Holy Spirit has to regenerate somebody's heart for them to to really be in relationship with Christ. Um, And again, I think this act is is aimed at showing the Samaritans and even showing the Jewish uh, folks that were around that the Samaritans had truly been forgiven of their sins and brought into union with Christ. One church. But now we get to this interesting case of Simon the Magician. And Simon, he's kind of a bigwig in this region of Samaria. Most people know who he is. He's doing these elaborate, uh, I don't want to call them magic trips. He, he would do like healings and um, he had this huge attraction of, or a sizable following of people. And earlier in this count, account, we see that Simon actually believes. says he believes the gospel and he's baptized. He too found this message of Jesus attractive and he wanted to be a part of it. But when he sees the apostles laying hands on these folks that had um, also become Christians and giving them the Holy Spirit, Simon does something pretty foolish. You know, he, he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. He's like, if I, if I had the power to do that, my following would just expand. I would become even bigger and more powerful and more attractive to more people. And Peter, uh, Peter swiftly rebukes him. He does not waste any time and he does not miss the point at all. He, he says, essentially, one, one commentator on this says, this is the equivalent of him saying, to hell with you and your money. It's about as strong of a condemnation as you could possibly imagine. Um, he's saying there is absolutely no way that you can buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money how dare you think such a thing? That is incredibly wrong. And, and you know, this is, a, this is pretty exposing of, of Simon's heart, of what he wants. Um, he wants power. He wants recognition. He wants to use God for his own ends. But Peter says in, in verse 21, he says, Simon, your heart is not right before God. Um, so, you know, we, we saw earlier in the count that, uh, that Simon believed, and we don't have any reason to doubt that he didn't believe, but we, we really don't know exactly what's going on with Simon in his heart. The account doesn't make it particularly clear. 
And people take different perspectives on how the story ends. You know, what really happens with Simon? Did he become a Christian or did he just kind of go about his business and continue doing his magician things? Um, church history, so later accounts beyond the Bible, hold that Simon continued in his, in his uh, you know, kind of magic uh, profession and even went on to Rome and became a bigger name. And w- the church counts him as, the early, early church counted him as the first heretic. But, you know, the account is pretty unclear. We don't know what happens with Simon. He could have very well repented and became a Christian that very day. But the account leaves that out. Um, But what's interesting and what's really clear here is is what Peter says next. So Peter condemns this action very strongly. Makes no, no doubt about the fact that he just did something really wrong. But then Peter says, he says you need to repent that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. So this is, a, this is a pretty radical idea here of the gospel, that even someone who just committed this really, really egregious sin could have mercy extended to him from God. And, and you know, I think what we can draw out here is that the, the mercy of, of the Lord, the forgiveness of the Lord, it can't be presumed upon. It's his grace to give. He forgives people. It's that forgiveness which is, and it's, it's that that's extended to the most broken of people. Um, so even, even though we don't know what happens with Simon, Peter recognizes that God could forgive this guy in Christ. Even, even though he committed this really, really horrible uh, misstep here, this sin. And, um, and I think this account pushes us to think about Peter and this, this kind of extending this forgiveness to this guy. Um, you know, what would actually shape the church, what would move the church to be that forgiving? What would, how would they become, uh, how would they move to a place to where they were actually able to forgive someone like Simon? Um, there's a really, I think, great story that's recorded by the early church historian Eusebius. So he was writing in the fourth century, and he records this story about the apostle John. So this is not in the Bible but it's in Eusebius's history, which is most people regarded as fairly reliable. But again, it's not it's not the Bible. But it, he tells a story about John, um, and John spent a lot of time with this particular young man who didn't have parents, and he spent he he spent tons of time with him. He essentially raised him, and he raised him in the gospel. He raised him to know Jesus. And the story says that as this, as this young man grows up, um, kind of becomes of age, he gets wrapped up in, into this, um, this gang of robbers, kind of the modern version of, a, or the, the ancient version, I should say, of like a modern street gang. So he gets, he gets into this band of robbers. And the way that robbers operated back then is they would just go out into the countryside, hang out in the hills, and then uh, basically like pounce on people as they were traveling, and they would rob them and then go about their business. Uh, and so this guy, this young man, joins this group of robbers, and he actually becomes the leader of this gang. And when John hears about this, it says, the account says that, that John ripped his clothes, and he, he calls for a horse, and he rides up to where they're known to hang out, where this gang is known to hang out. And he rides up into the mountains, and the, this, this group of robbers then kidnap him, um, because... They see this unfamiliar guy approaching, so they kidnap him, and John says, I wanted you to kidnap me, now take me to this young man. I want to talk to him. And he takes him, they take him to this young man, and the account says that John forgot of his age, he's older at this point, 
And he chased after this young man when he saw him. He, ran, he runs towards him. And he says this. John says, Why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed, aged. Pity me, my son. Fear not. You still have hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For I will give up my life. Stand. Believe. Christ has sent me. And the account says that when the young man heard this, he stopped running, he collapses, and he just begins to weep. And John comes over and he embraces him with a hug and he forgives him. John then led the man back home and restores him back into the life of the church. And, and you know, this is a pretty incredible story um, because we see the Apostle John in his old age risking his life to bring this young man back into the church. This guy, this, this guy who, for, who said, I want nothing to do with Jesus and I want to go do what I want to do and I want to live this life of, of being a thief and a robber. And I think if, as we think about what would compel John to do this, I mean, I think the only answer we can, we can possibly arrive at is, is radical forgiveness. John loved this young man. He, and John was, was simply reflecting the forgiveness of God to this guy. He risked his life for him. Because once you experience and see the forgiveness of God in Christ, it transforms you. It actually moves you to be a forgiving person, to reflect that forgiveness out into the world. And so as, you know, as we think about this, as Christians today in Boston, you know, we are called to be forgiving. You know, have, you, have you ever thought about how, how much of an amazing thing forgiveness is. You know, it's not merely just forgetting or ignoring an offense that somebody committed against you. Um, you know, we see Peter here very strongly condemn Simon. He's not just ignoring what the wrong here. But yet forgiveness is still extended as a possibility. It means that, that moving past an offense without seeking revenge, but loving that person despite the offense, it's to restore the relationship after somebody has sinned against you. And when we recognize that no sin, that no wrongdoing, no group of people are outside of the possibility of God's forgiveness, it moves us to be forgiving of others. It enables us to embody a ministry that's marked by forgiving one another. Because we forgive one another in the church and extend forgiveness to others outside the church, we're actually reflecting the character of God himself. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, his name is Chris Wright, wrote a great book called The Mission of God's People. And in it, he says, when we live in ways that reflect God's own character, it should make God's people as attractive as God himself. So when we live as a, a community that forgives one another, and we even forgive outsiders, we even forgive our enemies, that actually reflects the character of God. That's an amazing thing. And then it becomes attractive to others. Why? Because people long to be in relationship with people that know them, that know the depths of them, which includes all the messy stuff, and they still love them. And that's just simply not possible without forgiveness. And moreover, you know, I think that longing that all of humanity has to be in relationship, to be known, to be forgiven, ultimately is pointing us to the, this desire to be in relationship with God himself. And the only way that that is possible is through God's forgiveness. So, you know, as we think about what it looks like to embody this kind of gospel ministry in the city, 
um, you know, we have to ask a really simple and just kind of straightforward question, and that is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What's the good news about Jesus? You know, how is it that broken, sinful people, people that are scared to talk about their faith, people that, that wrong each other re- repeatedly can actually be brought into relationship with God? How is that possible? Jesus. <laughs> that Jesus, God as man, came into the world to die for our sins and to be raised so that we might have new life. He absorbed all of our sin on himself. He paid the price for them. He forgave them. And by that act, he restored our relationship with God. So the gospel, you know, it's the beauty of Christ's work on our behalf. In, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You know, when we put this forgiveness of Christ extended to us in the gospel on display for the world to see, it's attractive. It's captivating. But we also have to acknowledge that there are real challenges to living like this. You know, why is it so hard to identify as a Christian in your workplace? Why is it so hard to to build cross-cultural relationships? Why is it so hard to forgive those that wrong us over and over again? You know, so those of us here that, that have put our faith in Christ, you know, we have to acknowledge we're in process. We're strugglers. We, we struggle with fear of what people will think of us. We struggle through the awkwardness and through just the difficulties of, of challenging relationships. We also have to acknowledge that we've been hurt by others. And it's easier to be consumed with, with anger and grief than to actually forgive others. And so the only thing that's really going to enable us to live this way, to live in a way that radically is welcoming of others, that's radically forgiving of others, is through Jesus. Because he forgives us. He forgives the most broken of sinners. Not based on class, not based on race, not based on background, not based on your educational attainment. Solely based on the work of Christ. It's radically forgiving. And through Christ, he's, he's weaving us into a new humanity as the church. You know, people that belong to him reflect him and his forgiveness into the world. You know, and if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would, one, we're glad that you're here, but I would also encourage you to think about, is there anything compelling about this? This idea that we can be put into right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. And for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, we're called to live in a way that reflects God that reflects God to your neighbors, to, that very, to your co-worker that gets on your nerves, to the neighbor that you see on a rare occasion. We're called to reflect God to them. It's a big task. It's a risky, it's a radical way to live. But Jesus has called us to it. And as we lean in and live this way, I think we'll see, as Luke puts it in verse 8, we'll see joy in the city, joy in Boston. And that's a beautifully attractive thing that people from all walks of life will rightly want to be a part of. So let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly thankful that through your work on the cross, you paid the price for our sins. You forgave our sin. You brought us into relationship with you. And now you've called us to live as people that reflect you in the world, that share this message of forgiveness um, to people of all backgrounds, of all walks of life, Lord. And we know that that's a challenging thing. So we ask for your spirit to empower us, to enable us to do these things and be incredibly gracious and merciful to us, Lord. 
we're thankful for your love. Be with us as we go out from this place this week and, and, um, and strive to lean into who you have called us to be. In your name, amen.